Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, College Park. All right, let's take our Bibles and go over to Psalm 34. And uh, let me ask you to join me as we pray and ask for the Lord's help. We thank you, Father, for great and important truths in your word. Thank you for moments when you show up and then um, psalmists like David write about them. These moments give us hope when we're hurting so that we can think rightly and we can remember what you've done. Our faith at times grows weak, and we need these important moments when you rescue people, when you rescue us, to remind us that although at times the heavens seem silent and we wonder how this is going to work out, that you are on your throne and you are always good. We have tasted, we have seen, Lord, you are good. And we pray that this psalm today would remind us of that. And Lord, I pray particularly that be that there would be men and women who would see their need today to truly taste of the goodness of Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So make that evident and plain even from this psalm. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever um, had what you might call a close call? The kind of thing where if different circumstances had happened or maybe something had gone just a little bit further, three or four feet one way, or you hadn't seen that car coming, that you might not be here today. Or maybe your kids or something of that sort. Those close calls happen to all of us. I've had a couple in my lifetime, and they, they, they kind of change how you view that day, don't they? Change how you sing, how you even see God's Word. 
a church member of ours, uh, Tony Trent, who's a, a landscaper, um, told me a story of uh, how God really helped him in the midst of a close call. He was pulling a uh, bobcat behind his truck, and um, the bobcat had a particular attachment on it that could make it a forklift. And for those of you who aren't mechanically inclined, here, I'll help you, that had these, these, these 75-pound tongues that were attached uh, to the front end of this uh, bobcat. As he's traveling along, the, uh, one of the tongues begins to vibrate and made it all the way to the end of that uh, apparatus there. And then it came off the apparatus attached to the bobcat. That 75-pound tongue then fell off the trailer, hit the pavement, and the momentum made it a boomerang. Sort of like if you drop a, a, a screwdriver on your driveway and sometimes it can come back to you. Well, this thing hit the, dry, hit the, uh, the, the asphalt and became a boomerang and then lunged back towards the cab and penetrated the back end of his truck. So he said, hey, let me show you what God saved me from this week and showed me this picture. It's a 75-pound tongue. If someone had been in that back seat or if it had gone just a few more feet further, we'd be having a funeral uh, this week and not saying, praise the Lord. So that's a close call, isn't it? So the question is, what do you say when something like that happens? After you're done screaming, what do you say, right? <laughs> what, 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 do you say, whoo, that was lucky? Is that what you say? So, these kind of moments change how you read scripture the next day, don't they? These change what you sing even on the Lord's Day. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that when you've tasted and seen God's deliverance, it gives you spiritual eyesight that you see life really differently. See the word differently, you sing differently, and it's these moments of, of rescue where God just sovereignly delivers us, that we're reminded that, wow, he's always watching. He always cares for us. And you know what? Uh, my, my life really is in the palm of God's hand. And you know what? We need to be reminded of that because there's other moments in life when we begin to wonder, hey, God, are you listening? Do you see what's going on? Do you, you really got my back? And, and these moments of when God rescues us, these close call moments, are important for us to remember when life gets really hard and really tough. We're in a series right now on the study of the book of Psalms. It's called The Song for Every Season. It, um, it's a great journey through this book uh, because it helps us to be reminded that the scriptures really know uh, what it's like to be in our shoes. It, it, it's a real world uh, kind of book. It expresses what our heart really feels. So far we've looked at Psalm 1, which has identified two paths for us, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. We've seen Psalm 8, where um, David extols the, extol, extols the beauty of who and what God is. He says that um, you have set your glory above the heavens, and then says, what is man that you are mindful of him? This contrast between God and men, mankind is just unbelievable. And then Psalm 9, last week we saw that um, the praise for the past leads to trust in the crucible, where, where David says, I will give thanks to you with my whole heart. Now, today in, in, in Psalm 34, we're going to look at this notion of what happens when God rescues you, and what do you say, and what should come out of your heart, what should come out of your mouth that will serve as a reminder even coming forward. Because what happens here is that David, in Psalm 34, writes this psalm after a really close call in his life. He was delivered. God literally rescued him, and so he wrote this as a celebration of seeing God's deliverance. What, what was the situation with David? Let me explain it to you. 
If you look in your Bible, Psalm 34, underneath the title, Psalm 34, you'll see a little description. My Bible, it says this, of David, which means David wrote it, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. You're like, okay, so what is that all about? Let me explain it to you. So, so David wrote this psalm when he was in a dangerous situation with a king named Abimelech, or also called Achish of Gath. First Samuel 21 tells us the story. David was to be the king of Israel. Saul was the present king, and he was a dismal failure. He was the first king, and he was a loser. God took David and told Saul that eventually Saul was going to lose the throne and David was going to, in effect, be the king. David happened to be in the court of Saul and became very successful, a military leader, um, winning lots of battles, such that the people began to really love David and not like Saul so much. And Saul could kind of smell the aroma of the lack of people's affections and Saul became jealous of David. Eventually, Jonathan, Saul's son, told David that Saul was ready to kill him. And so, therefore, David fled the country. He left his homeland in Israel, and he went to none other than the land of the Philistines. David went there hoping to just kind of blend into the territory, even to become one of the hired mercenaries of the king of Gath named Achish. However, the text tells us that the servants recognized David, and they told the king that David was a famous Jewish warrior. Now keep in mind, the Philistine area was not safe territory for David. After all, remember what he did when he was a boy? He killed a giant. The giant was the preeminent uh, fighter for the Philistines. And then as well, when Saul had offered his daughter Michael to David, um, David uh, had to pay a dowry in order to be able to marry Michael. And Saul was hoping that David would die by giving him this dowry. He said, you can marry my daughter, but it will cost you the death of a hundred Philistines, and you have to bring me their foreskins to prove that you killed them. Well, David killed 200. So you can imagine, here's a guy who's killed 200 people, and he's killed the giant Goliath, and he goes to that country to hide. And when the servants then realize who he is, and the king tells, uh, the servants tell the king who he is, David is in trouble. He's not in friendly territory. In fact, if you have your Bible, look at 1 Samuel 21, verse 12. Here's the story. 1 Samuel 21, verse 12. It says, And David took these words to heart, these words that they had heard about him, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. This is just crazy. If this wasn't in the Bible, it would be hard to believe. And he pretended to be insane in their hands. So so that's just funny in and of itself because what, what goes through your head to think, I know what I'll do. I'll pretend that I'm crazy like right now, right? <laughs> it's just like, I, there's a lot of ways to get out of a jam. I just, that wouldn't be mine, but it's what he did. And then notice what he did. It says he pretends to be insane. And um, where am I? Verse 13. Oh, there's. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate. So he runs to the gate. He starts clawing at the gate. Ah, ah, ah. Drools coming down his beard. Let spittle run down. I mean, this is crazy. It's bizarre stuff. And the result, look at verse 14. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Now what he says next is really funny. Do I lack madmen? 
<laughs> so apparently, he's looking around and going, like, I need more crazy people around here, right? What are you doing? He says, do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as madmen in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so what happens? They're like, get him out of here. And so they kick him out of the city. And so, so David realizes that that was close. I mean, he, he acts like a crazy man. They believe him. And it, apparently he goes, we think, to a cave. And then he writes Psalm 34. And as he's reflecting on his crazy behavior, his drooling, his scratching at the gate and everything else, he says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. I mean, David knew he's not that great of an actor, right? It is God who delivered him from this king. And so what I want you to see here is um, this deliverance that David has given and what he says about God. And mark these things down because there may be... Let me restate that. There will be a day in your life when you need to come back and remember these six truths about what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's the first one. The first statement is this. God is awesome. Do you believe that? you believe God is awesome? Well, nothing like a close call moment just to remind you that God is awesome. Verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So notice here that David emphasizes the scope of his praise. He's so overwhelmed with the beauty of what God has done, how he's rescued him, that he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. So there, this, this sense that David is overwhelmed by the beautiful rescue that God has given him, and so therefore he is overwhelmed with the beauty of what his praise to God needs to be. All times, continually. He has seen God personally deliver him, and he knows that without God, he would not have been rescued. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. The word boast means that you have experienced something supremely satisfying, something that is great. It's a word that's used all over the Psalms to call people to worship. And so David is, in effect, calling others. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble... Be glad that the humble hear and be glad. Then verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That word magnify means to make great. Don't think of this as a microscope making something small seem big. Think of it rather as a telescope. Something that is really big and far off near. This is what God's rescuing moments do, is they bring the bigness, the awesomeness of God, and they bring it close, that you realize, oh God, if if you wouldn't have helped us there, we, we, we would have gone right into the ditch. This is what moments of great deliverance do for us. They They confirm what we know, but then we know it, that God is awesome. It means at night, you say thanks to God in a whole new way. When we first moved to Indianapolis here, our kids weren't so accustomed to living in a close neighborhood. And in particular, our youngest, Savannah, was not used to sidewalks and busy streets and things of that sort. And like a day after we moved here, she came around the side of a parked car, our car, and turned the corner as another car was coming down the road. And she just turned, you see it in slow motion, you go, no! And she turned the corner right next to the car and went between the vehicles. And I mean, our hearts were just like just pounding within us. Because if that turn had gone straight instead of left, it would have killed her. And it's those moments that you just, God, thank you. 
You are awesome. And moments of great rescue remind us that our, we are in the palm of God's hand. God is awesome. Here's the second thing, verses 4 um, to 7. It is that He can do it. The second statement relates not only to God's ability to rescue us, but also the fact that God is powerful. He's able. Which means this, that when you find yourself in a position of desperation, you need to remind yourself, don't despair. God can help us here. He's helped us before. He can help us again. And David wants us to see that God is powerfully able to help those who hope in Him. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Notice there that God can help you when you feel anxiety. You're under a panic attack, you're nervous, you're afraid, you've got all these fears coming out. You know, God can personally, through His Word and through spending time with Him, help deliver you from the things that you're afraid of. He says, those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. I've been around a lot of grieving people in my lifetime. I've been around people that have been in really difficult straits. And it's amazing, when someone puts their trust in the Lord, how their whole face, their radiance can be un- unbelievably, wonderfully positive, yet they're in the midst of a very difficult and dark moment. They could be crying and sorrowful and yet radiant because they're trusting. And that's the idea here. I sought the Lord, He answered me. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 6, same thing. David says really the same thing in verse 6 and 7 that he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So when you're in pain, you feel very weak. People in in fear, they, they feel frail. And yet a seemingly powerless person has every reason in the world to be confident and hopeful when they're talking to God. He says here that this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And then it goes on and it talks about spiritual protection. He says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. I love this. The idea is that that God is protecting those who fear him. He's protecting those who put their trust in him. But often we don't have that kind of spiritual perspective, do we? But when God rescues us, we're reminded, you know... God, you helped us. You protected us. You, you, you changed the circumstances such that you kept us safe. And that spiritual perspective is really important because when you're in the middle of a difficult or a dark scenario, it's easy to lose perspective. Like, you know what? This is going to kill us. This, it's, it's over. Or this grief that I feel, this, this hardship that's going on, I can't live like this much longer. And what you don't realize is there's a spiritual perspective that needs to change. A great example of this in the Old Testament would be what happened with a prophet named Elisha and the city of Dothan. Elisha followed Elijah, one of the greatest prophets that Israel had ever seen, and there was a threat to Israel called Syria. And every time Syria would make a military move, Elisha, because of his prophetic powers, would warn the king of Israel, and Israel would therefore get the upper hand and Syria would lose. King of Syria found out that Elisha had this power, and so he determined that the best military strategy would be to first take out Elisha so that then they could win. And so they took all of their forces and they surrounded the city of Dothan in order to kill one man. Kill the prophet, we win the the, the war. And so they encircled the city. And 
Second Kings chapter 6, verses 15 to 17 records the story. When the servant of the man of God, that's the servant of Elisha, rose early in the morning and he went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? You ever said that? You look around, you're like, oh, you probably didn't say alas, I'm sure, but you're like, what shall we do? And you're like, honey, this isn't going to work. This isn't, I don't know. Ah, you get a text. I don't know what to do. Put that in those little, short little, you know, lines. Oh, my word or whatever. I don't know what to do. God, help me, help me, help me. What shall we do? And here's what Elisha said. He said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. So suddenly he saw the spiritual perspective that there was much more armed forces with Elisha than was with the Syrian army. Thankfully, the Old Testament is the only one that talks this way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to this one. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Listen, God has done it in the past. He's delivered you before. He can do it again. The forces that are aligned with you are greater than the forces of the, of the evil one. Greater is he that is in you. So when you feel overwhelmed by the presence of sin, overwhelmed by the consequences of people who've done dumb things around you, and you're like, what in the world? Remember, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He can do it. Here's the third one. God is good all the time. Do you believe that? He's good all all the time. Verses 8 to 10. The third statement captures the essence of the entire psalm as David invites the reader or the singer to experience God the way that he has. He invites him, come, taste, see, the Lord is good, verse 8. And then he commends the Lord to people. He says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The picture that David paints here is that the man or the woman who runs to God for safety finds great security in him. Look at verse 9. After saying, O taste and see that the Lord is good, he says, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Which means you come to the Lord and you find contentment, you find sufficiency. The, The young lions, verse 10, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have everything you've ever wanted. It doesn't mean every desire of your heart is always going to be fulfilled. That's not what it means. But it means this, that you can trust that God knows exactly what you need when you need it. It means that you can look at all the circumstances of life and know that there's a gracious, good God behind all of them. He knows exactly what you need. In fact, I found myself before praying something like this. Lord, apparently you know that I need this right now. And I prayed that even over people. Apparently you think I need this person right now in my life. Apparently you think I need this issue, this challenge. And you have everything that I could ever want or need in you ready and accessible for me. In fact, this theme of God being good all the time is all over the New Testament. Listen to the, what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 8, this is 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That means everything in your life is working out in order to make you more like Christ. Here's another one. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then this is my favorite, 2 Corinthians 9.8 
Whenever you think, oh, this is just too much, I can't handle it, there's, there's too much going on, this is, this is too difficult, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 should be a text you memorize. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times you may abound in every good work. So just when you think, you know what, I don't think I can handle it, if one more blank happens, God gives you sufficient grace to be able to bear it up. So David, in the midst of this rescuing moment, says, God is good. He's good all the time. He's good. Taste and see. Here's the fourth one. It's this. He says that God's ways work. Now, verses 11 to 14 sound a little bit like Proverbs. A couple weeks ago when I did an introduction into the book of Psalms, I told you that there are particular sections within the book of Psalms that have proverbial statements in them. And this would be an example of that. What happens here is that David invites people to listen to him. And in effect, what he says is, listen to me, God's ways work. If you want to know the path of blessing, choose obedience. If you want to go down the path of cursing with lots of consequences, just just do everything contrary to God's ways. In other words, if you if you want to get in trouble, just lie all the time and try and keep up with that. You know it's a lot safer just to tell the truth. Because you don't have to worry about keeping up with your lies, right? If, if you just want to be a good husband, a good father, then be committed to your wife. Be committed to your family over the long haul. I met a couple this morning, celebrated their 50th anniversary this weekend. It's like, praise God for you. See, God's ways work. It works in money. It works in marriage. It works in life. It works in culture. And David here, verse 11, invites people to learn about the fear of the Lord from his experience. He says, come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David has seen that following God and doing things his way works. Verse 12 promises long life and blessing for those who choose God's path. Verse 13 he even talks about how we talk. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. David surely knew about this because a lot of wrong stuff was said about him. Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Isn't it interesting that David is saying this while he's on the run from King Saul? David has learned over his lifetime that God's ways work. There'll be a moment in his life when he'll have the opportunity to kill Saul in a cave and his men will say to him something like, David, God has delivered Saul into your hand. Kill him right now. And David chooses to not take the life of the king because of a command in the scriptures that you're not allowed to do that. Only God could kill the king And so what David knows is what you know, and that is that following God's command in the midst of a culture that's lost its way at times is really, really challenging. Because what happens in order to take God at his word and then to follow him means that you have to believe God's promises. You gotta take God's commands. You gotta, you gotta see what God says and trust him that his ways really are best. And so it's good to be reminded, almost like a parent would remind a child, that following God's way is the best way, that God's way is the best path. So today is Father's Day, and I read an article this weekend in the Indy Star that I think illustrates this point. I think it almost goes without saying that God's design for a family in our culture, a husband and a wife and kids who come after marriage, it's getting kind of rare these days. There's this model that, by the way, isn't old school. It's not traditional. It's right. 
And, and one of the things we have to help teach our children is despite what the television says or pop culture tells you, this idea of a husband and a wife and then kids in that context, that's God's design. Just because people love each other, that doesn't make a marriage. And just because they claim to live together, it doesn't make a home. And just because they have other children in the context of that home and the marriage has nothing to do with it, it doesn't make it necessarily a family. And so we need to help people understand that God's ways are the very best ways, and God has designed culture to be a particular way. And when things get off, then everything begins to unravel. And here's an illustration of that. A Pew Center report identified that marriage rates in traditional family households have fallen to historic lows. But it was this next statistic that just alarmed me. Listen, nearly half of American dads younger than 45, so get this, nearly half of American dads younger than 45 have at least one child who was born out of wedlock. Half. And the share of fathers living apart from their children is more than double what it was not so long ago. This, my friends, will have an an enormous effect generationally of the absence of fathers in the life of their children. However, the story behind the story is that this is what happens to culture when you attempt to ignore God's ways. When you try and redefine marriage, when you redefine what morality is, this, this will simply be the effect. And as a result, when you live in a culture like this, to tell your kids as you're being raised up, here's God's way, live in this way, when it seems so countercultural, you have to believe that God's ways really work, or you will simply find yourself thinking that you're just kind of foolish backwards or maybe a bit old-fashioned. God's ways work. Number fifth. David reminds us that God is not ignoring you. See, this is the temptation when you're in the midst of a hard moment and you cry out to God and there's no immediate answer from heaven. You ever ever wish that you could get an immediate answer? If you could just say, God, will you help me next week Friday? Oh, okay, great, I can wait till then. So if you could just get an an answer, or I'll help you now, but you won't get the full answer until two, that would would help at least some level, wouldn't it? Unless God says, uh, no, you're going to have to work on this one and it's really going to be hard. Oh, I want that answer. Next answer, please, right? I mean, there's this, this sense of when you pray, this yearning to know that God hears and he answers. Well, David says, verse 15, that God is not ignorant of what's happening in your life. Look at, it says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Meaning God's inclination is to be bent towards those who are crying out to him. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. In other words, God knows that you've been maligned. And he's going to take care of it. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Verse 18, this is precious. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So as Eric and team led us in worship this morning, I, my, and some of you in, in prayer, I, I can imagine that there's some of you today who are just, you're here and you're just brokenhearted would be a, a great description of where you're at. And you know, this passage says that even though you feel like you've got nothing left, you're in the best possible place when you cry out to God. That He is near to the brokenhearted, that He saves the crushed in spirit. David reminds every hurting person that those who put their trust in God find real comfort. Here's the equation. In the New Testament, it sounds like this. The humbled receive help. 
See, the great thing is, is that brokenheartedness can actually lead you to a new spiritual understanding that you really need help. And, and friends, one of the first steps in getting your life right with God is understanding that you need help. So that brokenheartedness, that crushed in spirit, that sense that you have in your soul, I can't do this on my own, that's a beautiful place to begin. The humble receive help. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that unless they become like little children, they cannot enter the kingdom, which means unless they become dependent. In, in fact, uh, even beyond that, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 states it very clearly. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why if you come today, you're brokenhearted, you're crushed in spirit. One of the great things is that God has humbled you because of the hardship of your life. And therefore, you've got a great opening humble yourselves he says under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you so when god delivers you and he rescues you and you're reminded oh yeah you did hear my cry you 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 did hear what was going on in my soul mark that down because later on later on in your life when you're struggling under the weight of some other problem or difficulty you're going to need the reminder oh be humble let, let's, let's trust in God again, and let's not forget, he, he really cares. He really does. Because the enemy in your flesh will throw thoughts at you like, God doesn't care. I mean, is this really fair? Look what's happened to you. You didn't deserve this. And you let those thoughts go for a while, you'll be in the tank fast. He's not ignoring you. Here's the sixth and final one, and that is this, that God is our ultimate hope. It's a great way this, this psalm ends here, pointing us to even beyond the immediate circumstances of Psalm 34, what's going on in David's life. He looks even beyond the earthly life that he has, and he's looking towards a future that has God in its ultimate focus. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many. Oh, oh, parents, please teach this to your kids. Give them a right view of Christianity, please. That, that it isn't just that we receive Jesus as our Savior so we can know where we go when we die. That's, that's step A. Step B is understanding that when you walk in righteousness, there will be hardships. Prepare them that there will be afflictions. The text says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And that's not just it, but it says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In fact, if you needed a great example of this, look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That verse should trigger a little bit of a memory for you from the book of John that was referred to Jesus in the fact that when he was on the cross, enduring all of the payment for our sin, John cites this verse as a fulfillment passage indicating God's care for his son even in the midst of life's and history's darkest hour. Verse 21 points us even further towards the coming of judgment for the wicked. It says, affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. In other words, there will be a day when unrighteous people who've done wrong things will get their due. And David is placing his hope in God's ability to be God and then finally, notice where this psalm ends. Oh, it's just so great. Look at, and don't miss these words. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants 
and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. I mean, just, just think of that passage. The Lord redeems, that's, that's a big time word, redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so what David is doing here is he's, he's seeing this moment with the king of Gath, Achish, he sees how God rescues him. He, he recounts the beautiful way in which God is worthy of his praise, how God is awesome, that God has a, a victory, that he has worked through, that he's not ignoring David, that, that he has come to be his deliverer, but he's also looking even beyond this, beyond this to the fact that David's hope and his trust is in God's ability to ultimately redeem him, to ultimately save him, and that those who take refuge in him have no condemnation. Now again, if you read Psalm 34 and you know anything about the New Testament, you you have to hear the parallels. If If you don't know the parallel, let me explain it to you. That behind the scenes of Psalm 34, or really on the basis of Psalm 34, there's another thing that's coming in the future, and I want to call it the eternal close call. It's tied to this word redemption and this concept of no condemnation. So let me just pull the scope back from Psalm 34 and even beyond your own life on the earth. Let me put it this way. Every one of us, will stand before God and have to give an account for his or her life. I don't know exactly what that moment will be like. But I have a suspicion that our sins and our unworthiness will be very clear to us on that day. I think that we will see the beauty of an awe-inspiring holy God the creator of the universe, who has no limit, no boundary, no scope that you can possibly comprehend. And there he is in all of his fullness and all of his glory and all of his holiness and all of his beauty. And there you are in all of your humanity and your limitations and your innate sinfulness. And I think that in that moment, it will be devastating, this view of God, it will be devastating in its glory in comparison to who we really are. I think the product of that moment will be that the verdict of guilt for the product of your life, in light of who God is, the difference between you and God will be so unbelievably clear that that moment will be overwhelming unbelievably convincing that you are not like God, and it will be crystal clear, here is God and here is me. And in front of a holy God, there you stand as a human being, and I will tell you, I think that moment, you will sense that this is a dangerous moment. Because the only hope for your soul on that day is a promise that God made in His Word. The only hope for you as you stand before a holy God as a sinful human being is a promise. Something God says in His Word. And it sounds like this from the book of Romans. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, here's the promise, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So I think you can see the beauty of what God is, the holiness of what he is, and you know the wrath that would be behind this infinite holiness, and you know who you are, and the only thing standing between the wrath of God and you is a promise given to you in the word. 
And that promise is Christ died for us. You can be justified by His blood and you can be saved by Him from wrath. You can be saved from God's holiness. Another promise in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you stand before a holy, righteous God as a sinful person, and the only thing you have to stand on is a promise. And so when you are confronted with the holiness of God and the devastating guilt of your life, the only hope is that you have a righteousness given to you by Jesus because of His death, and you're receiving that gift as your own. It means that at a time in your lifetime you prayed, whether as a young child or as a later an adult, you said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Would you receive me? Receive me, Lord. I want to receive you as my Savior. Receive me as your child. And you believe in a promise that God took Jesus' death and counted it for you and took your sin and gave it to Jesus. And when you stand before God, you are banking everything on that promise. Everything, eternal life is based on the belief in that particular promise. And when you see God for who He is and you know who you are, you know the unbelievable danger of this moment. And I can only imagine what it will be like to see a holy God say to you, I have received you because you have received my Son. Come into the everlasting joy of my kingdom. And I wonder that if some of the first things that we say when we walk into the new heaven and the new earth after seeing God and knowing ourselves and seeing what just happened, some of us won't have this on our lips. Oh, that was close. That was close. Because of the hair breath, the, 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 the hairline, the small f- line between condemnation and righteousness relates completely to belief in a promise right now. And I believe that all of eternity, there will be nothing more relieving, nothing more joyful than knowing that God has forgiven you despite who you really are. And it will give new meaning to Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise, can I change it, will eternally be in my mouth. Why eternally? Because you know how close it was. That without the promise, without Christ, you've seen God, you've seen you. You know how different the two of you are and how danger, what a danger you were in. And if it wasn't for Christ, you'd have no reason to be there and realizing that God has forgiven you of past, present, and future sins, put it all underneath the banner of Christ's blood and covered you in that. Then you realize God ultimately rescued you when you couldn't rescue yourself and he saved you from a very dangerous reality, which was being a sinful being in the presence of a holy God. And so my prayer is is that you would have this confession of your mouth being able to praise the Lord continually because you know the real meaning behind Psalm 34, which is you know Jesus. Because listen to me, if you don't know Jesus, then Psalm 34, verse 1, this idea of praising Him, it'll never come out of your mouth because instead verse 21 is for you affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And and the warning, the, the sober warning from Psalm 34 is more dangerous than the king of Gath, more dangerous than anything you could face in your life is the danger of unconfessed and unrepented sin when you come into the presence of a holy God. And so my final plea is to those of you who can imagine what that moment will be like 
standing before a holy God, but you don't believe and have done anything with the promise of what's on this screen. You're just floating along as if, well, I'm doing better than most. And the reality is you're, you're in an, an eternally dangerous position. And so the call of this psalm is for you to taste and see that Jesus is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge from sin in Him. Because the rescue from indwelling sin, that's the ultimate close call. Knowing that without Jesus, you'd have nothing to stand on. No forgiveness, no cleansing, and no protection from a holy God when you're a sinful being. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Jesus from their sin. That's the person who's really safe. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the enormity of our sin and the power of your holiness and that today, whether here Worship 2, or someone listening to this sermon online, that you would bring us back to the promise that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that in you, Jesus, all our sins are forgiven, and we have a right relationship with a holy God. And I pray that we would feel the weight today of both the beauty of that moment, the beauty of that reality, and the horrible possibility that we've not really dealt with this issue. And I pray that today there might be men and women who for the first time would say, Lord Jesus, this is something I need to deal with. I need to take refuge in you for the forgiveness of my sin. And then, Lord, because of that rescuing, they might be filled with eternal praise to your name. So God, birth people, I pray today, into the kingdom. And for those who know this truth, help it to be the anchor of their soul when other difficult things come, that they can come back to this reality and say, if Jesus can save me from myself, he can save me from these other things too. So help us, Lord. Be clear with our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.